It's Consumer Choice Radio coming to you once more on the radio and on your podcast app. One half of your host, Niall Osanski, broadcasting from the Imperial Studio in Vienna, Austria. And I have on the line with me, my co-host, David Clement. David, how goes it? Good, sir. Oh, it's going. It's going well. Um, lots to talk about in uh, the world of Canadian politics, but also now international politics. Because I don't know if um, you saw this come across your desk um, early in the morning um, when we're recording this, but the former um, prime minister of Japan has been assassinated, um, which I don't know enough about Japanese politics to understand um, what the backstory there would be, but pretty scary stuff. Um, pretty scary stuff. He was essentially gunned down at a political rally um, yeah and i even i even tried to crack you know because i've got a couple hours ahead of you right tried to crack the nut of uh <laughs> anything related to japanese politics it's it's very difficult but uh shinzo abe who was unfortunately gunned down and uh has passed as we now know uh he was he was somewhat of i would say um a good market liberal you know, sort of more conservative, bit more nationalistic, uh, which again is a totally different context and was actually starting to build up the military in Japan. Uh, and I learned, I mean, this is a, aside the point, obviously a tragedy. The guy apparently had a homemade, I mean, what looked like a shotgun. I don't know if you saw a picture of it. Yeah, the guy like wrapped, like put together a shotgun out of like a couple of tubes and some kind of thing. I mean, obviously guns are. Uh, a no-no in Japan, I guess, unless you're part of the Yakuza or whatever. I don't really know. Uh, but just some kind of makeshift thing seemed unrepentant. And then when the, apparently the investigators asked him, like, why did you do this? He goes, I was upset at his policies. That's wild. Just like unhinged. You know, the, there's nothing to be there's nothing to be gleaned from this. And, you know, I think political assassinations are, are next level. Uh, because a lot of people, you know, like to turn to them for all kind of interpretations. But it's similar to many mass shootings in the U.S. You know, most people who do this are nutcases. Uh, there's no rational behavior on their part. And everybody who tries to read any rationality and, into, or, you know, what they post online, yeah. it's a big thing. Yeah, it's just crazy. I the mean, there, or, there's a National Review article I have up in front of me, and it's like Shinzo Abe, Japan's Reagan. Um so I think he was uh, yeah. quite a figure. I, I know I don't know much about Japanese politics, but I do know that um, he was particularly good on China uh, and pushing back yeah, and support Taiwan. from Taiwan. Yeah. Um, which I mean, it's obviously uh, the stakes are a lot higher for the people of Japan than they are um, folks in North America, and I think he kind of rose to that equation. Um, he, sorry, who rose to the occasion there, not the equation, um, quite well. Um, so, very, yeah, very sad um, to to hear that, um, Boris. And in your in your line, actually, um, you know, following your thinking, uh, is uh, he actually opened up a little bit of the doors to immigration? Yes, which was completely foreign in Japan. Their immigration system was like <laughs> yeah. heavily restrictionist. Uh, and yeah, he did open that up, um, which is a, a big change. I mean, two big changes in traditional Japanese policy is their approach to the military 
um, and his approach to immigration. Um, so a real kind of trailblazer. Yeah. Uh, interesting thing I saw on this, because I know we won't probably want to get to the UK, but, uh, but interesting thing I read about, about Japan, and I, it got me thinking, uh, apparently the Japanese constitution, cause, you know, I was looking up the political system, how it worked. This thing was just wholesale written by American military officials. Yeah. <laughs> this seems to be a trend. Yeah. Uh, same thing is true uh, in Germany. You know, the Austrian constitution was written by the Soviets, much the same. Uh, I think this is a big thing that uh, countries need is you need to, you know, have your own people write your own uh, bills that structure your political institutions. Maybe I'm just uh, being a bit, you know, nationalist there, but no, I think that would yeah, be important. I, I, well, think about how much Japan has changed since the immediate aftermath of World War Two. I mean, it's a, just a, it's a completely different country, um, essentially went from being one of our greatest adversaries, our being the U.S., Canada, etc., one of our greatest adversaries to one of our greatest allies um, in a very relatively short span. Um, but yeah, you're right. There, there's, um, there's a lot baked into their constitution, and I think that was part of the uproar about changing the approach to the military because it was written post-war in the context of Japan's military aggression. Um, but now, I mean, the world is a very different place. They have a, uh, a, a large aggressor in their neighborhood with China. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, and then the UK, Boris is, is done. Um, which is, it's weird because, so it, it's, it's weird from a US perspective because that would never happen in the U.S., it only happened with Reagan, or sorry, with um, Nixon, uh, but that was like criminal. Um, it would never, it never happens in Canada. There is no, like, there is no scandal that would bring Justin Trudeau down. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's strange to see him go. And the, the response is so interesting because I think in the U.K., conservatives have had enough. And people are kind of tired of the shenanigans, but internationally, especially in Ukraine, he is like the most beloved figure. Um, the same thing with people from Hong Kong, just absolutely loved um, by the people from Hong Kong. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's going to be the main thing that we'll probably know about Boris Johnson. You know, from five years on out unless he does something insane here in the next couple of years or runs for a UN general secretary or something like that. But uh, it will be the foreign policy aspect. And it's, it's interesting because some of the stuff that I've read, I mean, obviously you have the elite in London, you know, who read The Economist and who follow things around and they're kind of part of the Anglo-American elite. And they're very focused on what's happening internationally. But generally, it seems British politics really, Brexit was the only international thing they really cared about. And there's been, like, no focus. Like, it's not part of the debates in the House of Commons, at least from what I saw. Like, we should actually be doing this in Ukraine, or let's do this or that on China. It's really come down to just, like, a lot of domestic squabbles. And then, uh, you know, who had a bottle of wine at the Downing Street or something? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's very strange. There was a very good thread on Twitter. Someone basically took Trudeau's uh, scandals and then replace Trudeau's name and like cabinet ministers names with UK politicians 
And they, they, they posed a question like, oh, I wonder how the British would have responded to this. <laughs> and uh, it really put it into perspective. It's, it's actually kind of depressing when you think about it. Like, Yeah, it's the levels of accountability just seem much higher. But I, I think it's, uh, it's similar to, I mean, real, realistically, there's no personalities in the Canadian Liberal Party that are bold enough to really take on Trudeau. I mean, I mean Bill Morneau, I guess, is like waiting in the wings, but you know, he could probably do it. Ish. Ish, kind of. Yeah, it's strange. No, Certainly nobody actually elected. And that's the thing with Boris, is that like a large part of this uh, charge against him was led by his own members of parliament and cabinet ministers so and you know we'll talk about that next week uh we'll have uh, noah rothman on the show uh, talking about cancel you know canceling cancel culture and stuff but it's always there is always an element of essentially remaking the hierarchy or advancing oneself when perpetuating these cancel campaigns and in british politics it obviously happens all the time just watch the original house of cards you know that the american one is based on and you know, what are the real policy differences between some of the British conservatives? You know, there aren't really too many, as far as I know. It's all about personality, but I think I saw you uh, put somewhere, like, isn't it amazing, though, to have a system of government, of parliamentary government, where ministers and individual members of the parliament, like, actually have their own thoughts? and they're You know, they're allowed to actually put together their own ideas. You know, they don't necessarily have to just, like, follow in line behind the shadow of a, a JT. Well, and that's the thing, is that the the system is so um, rigged towards the the prime minister's office, right? You you If you really speak out against the prime minister, well, they turn you into an independent NP, uh, you lose your party status, you lose your staff, you lose the ability to fundraise based on the Elections Act, and historically, you lose um, whenever the next election is. Um so like they control it's like a weird lever of control that they have where it's like yeah you can only be so vocal um and i think that's very much true for the liberal party and i mean we're also we're seeing some some craziness with the conservatives too patrick brown is now out as a leadership contender there's a whistleblower within his campaign who said that um essentially she was paid by a company to work on the campaign, um, which is against the not only the, the rules, like basically all the finances, everything that's provided to the campaign that is paid work has to be paid for by the campaign as per the conservative rules and the Elections Act, which is the federal law that oversees this stuff. So um, it seems pretty like it's still an allegation but it certainly seems pretty clear that some rules were were broken some that may actually be in violation of federal law so he's out um that has been a just an absolute gong show to watch unfold as you see people celebrate complain accuse corruption accusing other candidates of putting a plant in their uh in, in the Brown campaign to do this, and it's like, oh boy, <laughs> this is going to be a big distraction. Yeah, it is. And I've seen uh, there's some political consultants who somehow have very high media stature uh, in Canadian uh, Anglo <laughs> world who, uh, oh, you know, want to try to say, oh, look, look at the conservatives' problem here. But yeah, yeah that's I mean, 
I don't know. The the problem is, um, I really liked a lot of what Patrick said during the uh, leadership election. Um, not so much in his attack of other candidates, but some of his policy ideas. Um, but given his history, it's hard to give him the benefit of the doubt on whether or not this is true. Um, because there are previous accusations and instances and investigations for stuff like this. Um, when he I was love how you did air politics. quotes on history. I like that there. Good move. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I think that pretty much sums up the the leadership race for Pierre, in my opinion. I think it's over. Um, mostly because, uh, and we know this from the past, so if you go back a few leadership elections when O'Leary dropped out and endorsed Bernier, uh, that should have been more than enough to get him over the 50% mark. He should have won by a wide margin if all of those people voted for Bernier, but they didn't. A lot of them didn't vote. A lot of them voted all over the map. Um, so given that trend, I don't think that um, all of those folks go to Sheree, and that's exactly what he would have needed in order to actually win. And so I, I think this is a done deal, um, but obviously there's still some time in the campaign but um i'm calling it i'm the the news desk at consumer choice radio is calling the uh conservative leadership for uh Pierre oh, wow. <laughs> all right well that, that's the david uh the david a clement uh prediction here uh you can lock it in the in the books here uh early july yeah we'll see if it happens i not really sure you know you, you always you, you could always have a black swan event you don't know what could happen you know if if there was some kind of ouster or I guess it's too late for other candidates to join in, right? Correct. Yeah, that's yeah, all. So done. something, who knows? And there's probably going to be a lot of smearing. And unfortunately, you'll have a lot of people who might be conservatives joining in and joining in with the Liberal Party and the Greens and whomever else. And uh, everybody will have their impact. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. David. So uh, yeah. what a time. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, go to break here. We've got a couple of things uh, we've got here for the rest of the program. We've got interviews with Bjorn Lumborg and conservative uh, candidate Scott Aitchinson, who still has a shot, by the way, folks, if you're interested in the Canadian uh, federal leadership election. But uh, great to hear about Yimby, about uh, positive environmentalism, all the good things. Let's go to it. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, our next guest, his first appearance on the show. Um, he is the conservative leadership candidate, Scott Aitchison. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So you have put your name into the ring um, for... Uh, conservative leader, what was driving you to put your name forward? I know it's quite a feat. It is it is a, a onerous process. Um, what was it that drove you to want to uh, lead the party and then ultimately uh, become prime minister? Well, I, I got to tell you, since getting to Ottawa, uh, I, I was elected in the class of 2019 after a you know pretty long stint in municipal politics. I was first elected when I was. 21 years old to my local town council. Of course, it was Huntsville. So it was a part-time gig. I had to work 
real jobs at the same time as well. And uh, but the last five years before getting elected federally, I was the mayor of Huntsville, and uh, you know, I I led a really pretty cohesive community and and uh, and and a pretty engaged council. Uh, and and my experience when I got to Ottawa was that uh, I, I guess you know my assessment was that there was an awful lot of folks in leadership positions that didn't really seem to understand leadership. I've always believed that leadership is about uh, actually engaging and empowering and inspiring the team around you to to great things, uh, and that uh, you know as a, if I was going to be the leader of the party, um, you know that, that that I was seeking the position of leader of a team. Mm-hmm. And that that team needed to be, you know, empowered. And so, uh, I, I, you know, I, it was one of those things where I think I've, I've been thinking about it all along. Wasn't necessarily thinking this time around necessarily, but uh, but was, you know, talking to enough uh, folks in, in the conservative movements in our caucus. And we decided, you know, the kind of campaign that I would run, uh, the kind of individual I am and the messages that I think are important to be talked about. Um, this was a good time to do it because. Our politics has become so divisive, not mm-hmm. not just within our conservative family, but really across the political spectrum. Our, our you know our politics is designed to divide us, to win more votes, and I, I'm I'm really frustrated by that, and I think a lot of Canadians are. And so we said, okay, well, let the, you know if you're frustrated by what's going on, you don't just sit back and hope it gets better. You roll up your sleeves and jump in and yep. uh, and demonstrate that you can do things better, do things different. Yeah, and I, I I think that at least from what I've anecdotally seen on Twitter, that that tone or that approach that you just described seems to be very much appreciated. I've seen some describe you as the adult in the room um, in terms of your approach to politics, and um, and praised you for two of your latest uh, policy announcements. I'll go with. Uh, the first one, uh, which caught my eye, which is your policy in regards to housing and what the federal government can do. Um, walk our listeners through what you think uh, the federal government can do to help alleviate some of the housing crisis we're seeing. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, again, reflecting on my experience as a mayor, and, and, and before I was mayor, I always chaired the planning committee. So of course, you know, getting homes built is uh, is very much a municipal and provincial issue. But uh, that's why I, you know, the role for the federal government uh, and one of the things that I always found frustrating as a mayor was just despite the work that we were doing locally, what all we seemed to be missing was a reliable federal partner uh, with you know small incentive kind of money to help you know get projects off the ground. They just they weren't reliable. Uh, and so, I, you know, I realize that the federal government, current federal government, is, has promised billions upon billions of dollars for housing. Uh, and yet, uh, as I said before, they're, they're pretty long on photo ops announcing money, but pretty short on ribbon cuttings. They're not getting the job done. Well, part of the reason for that is because of, you know, what we call exclusionary zoning. So to give you an example, in the city of Toronto, as an example, which uh, I don't mean to pick on Toronto because it's an issue across the board. Um, but in the city of Toronto, 70 percent of the of, of the land, the residential lands in Toronto are zoned for single family use exclusively. So they're not you know, you're not allowed to turn it into a duplex as of right. You're not allowed to have you know, necessarily a, an apartment in the basement. You have to go through, you know, a fairly painful planning process with rezoning and all those kinds of things. And, 
you know, you, everyone's heard of the expression nimbyism, that's the not in mm-hmm. my backyard. Uh, and yet, you know, if, if municipal governments uh, actually had the courage of their convictions to say, okay, we, we need more density, uh, and there are lots of ways you can, you can increase density without affecting character, which is a very important language in, in, in urban planning, but you can increase density dramatically without affecting character, uh, all kinds of places. We need, we, need to, we need to have the courage of our convictions to get it done because there are people suffering in this country who literally don't have a place to sleep. And so, you know, the federal government gives billions of dollars every year to municipal governments and provincial governments uh, for infrastructure projects, whether it's huge urban transit or small rural bridges, the federal government is involved uh, with that money. And so I just said, you know, let's, let's, let's work with all levels of government but let's start tying that federal money to results on issues that Canadians desperately need results on. And I think housing is really the foundation of anything in life. If you don't have a warm, safe bed to sleep in, you can't expect to do anything else, really. Get, it, get, get an education, get a job, self-actualize in any way. We need homes and it's a supply issue. Uh, and so we can, we can, you know, yes, we can use federal money to assist with the development of, uh, of affordable rentals. We definitely need more social housing and supportive mm-hmm. housing in this country. We can, we can give money directly for those kinds of projects, but we need to tie, you know, the, the big federal bucks to getting results. And so I understand the system well enough. Um, I've been in it well long enough in the municipal sector mm-hmm. that I know as a federal, as a federal leader and a prime minister, um, I know that there are ways we can tie that. I, I just think it's it's a smarter use of uh, of all taxpayer dollars, and uh, having us all work together. We need results. That's all it comes yeah. down to. And you know, it's not it's not we're not getting results now. Yeah, yeah. It's very much the the current system has failed uh, for a variety of reasons, and so um, why not incentivize that um, by tying those funds and. Maybe have some some municipalities look at exclusion, exclusionary zoning and and um, what they can what property owners can build as of right. I think that would certainly help, um, especially on the missing middle. Um, I know right now for a lot of people who are my age, it's um, maybe you could afford a condo, maybe um, six six hundred square feet, and then outside of that, uh, you have all sorts of other housing units that are. 1 million, 1.2 million, 1.6 million. So it's definitely needed. Um, On another issue, um, which I would call a sacred cow in conservative politics, pardon the pun, is supply management. And I was personally overjoyed when I saw you come out against supply management. Um, But what is your justification for ending supply management? No, the primary justification for me is affordability for Canadians. Yeah, you know, you know, one in five Canadians live under the poverty line, and supply management makes basic foods like milk more expensive. A, you know, family with children, it costs them almost six hundred dollars a year more in groceries, and and so uh, to me, it's about affordability, but it's also you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not a kind of person who wants to pit farmers against consumers or, mm-hmm. you know, create a war. There are going to be dairy farmers that aren't happy about this because the status quo has given them stability. And I understand that. 
and it will take some time to unwind a 50-year-old policy. But you know, by by locking um, our farmers into the Canadian market and locking you know other countries' goods out of our markets with huge tariffs, you know, we've created a system where yeah, we have stability in our dairy markets and our dairy farmers. But they they can't really market their products to the world. Canada is an exporting nation. If we don't export, we don't live the life we live. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that you know we have some of the best dairy farms, some of the best dairy farming practices, and some of the best products in the world. Uh, and 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 by getting out of this system that traps uh, innovative farmers into just our market, uh, we can we can open huge opportunities around the world. I've given the example of New Zealand. Uh, which exported $17 billion worth of, worth of dairy products last year. And, you know, there's 5 million people in that country. There's 38, <laughs> almost 40 million here in Canada. We exported $378 million worth of dairy products last year because mm-hmm. other countries shut us out of our market. So when you call it a sacred cow, it's, it's, a, it's a cute fun, but it's true. Um, and, and this is an example of, of what I think is just really smart policy that helps Canadians who are struggling with inflation, who are struggling with the, you know, a carbon tax adds, you know, cost to everything you eat. Everything that you buy in a grocery store is shipped in a truck. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? They're paying more to ship that, you know, everything's costing more because of, you know, bad liberal policy for about seven years. Uh, and now inflationary pressures, which I grant you, there are some global impacts that are causing some of the inflationary pressures we're seeing. But, uh, you know, as a result of, uh, of all these policies and all these, you know, seven years of liberal, liberal rule, life's getting really expensive and it's hard for families to eat. I can tell you, I can give you real examples in Perry Sound, Muskoka, my riding of people that I know, I know them well, who call me in tears because they're not too sure if they can afford to heat their home and eat. Like proud people have worked hard all their lives going to food banks because, and they're ashamed. Mm -hmm. That should never happen in this country. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm all about helping people like that. This is, this is, this is not a political ploy. It's not a game. This mm-hmm. is just smart policy that actually helps farmers and it makes life more affordable for the people most vulnerable in our society. And so on both, both of those policies, I think something that really echoes here is, is the reality that, that, ordinary Canadians are facing food inflation, skyrocketing housing prices, increasing rents. Do you think that maybe there has been a bit of a disconnect in Ottawa um, over maybe just over COVID or maybe over the last seven years in regards to what real life looks like for ordinary Canadians? Absolutely. 1000%. Honestly, Ottawa you know, I, I delivered a speech uh, in response to the government's use of the Emergency Measures Act. And in, I mean, I didn't talk as much about the Emergency Measures Act as other people did. But, but what I pointed out in that speech is that, is that we've had now decades of a political system in Ottawa that is this zero-sum game about winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they slice and dice the electorate and they, and, and they prey upon the differences of opinion that exist between urban and rural and east and west and, and, and you know, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. You, you, you look at our political system. It's designed to divide us. Our, our leaders should be, should be working hard to unite us and bring us together. Uh, and, and to me, that's the problem in Ottawa. It's about, it's about winning. It's about, it's about 
you know, crafting policies in such a way to know that you're going to court this group over here, even if it means pissing off that group over there, but they tend to vote conservative. So let's do it this way. I mean, honestly, if I, and I said this in my speech, you know, those of us in the House of Commons that served in municipal government, we all know full well, we all know full well that if we behaved in local councils, the way that politicians behave in Ottawa, we get our butts kicked on the main street. People wouldn't put up with that. Mm-hmm. And Ottawa needs to operate. I, I just think it needs some needs some small town, uh, small town mayor to, to, you know, focus on why we're there in the first place. We're there to help help people, support people, to 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 make Canada to, you know, a free country with opportunity for all. Uh, and that's what's missing. It's about winning. It's not about it's not about helping Canadians. Yeah, it it feels like sometimes um, it's forgotten that um, the private whomever the prime minister is, is the prime minister for all Canadians, not just those who, who voted for them. Um, we have about 45 seconds left. Where can people find out more information about your leadership campaign? Well, thank you for this opportunity. And I'll, I'll, I'll just say votescott.ca. Nobody can spell my last name. So you can see how you spell my first name behind me here. Votescott.ca. Please come check us out. We are uh, in the final stages of uh, putting together all the money we need to be on the ballot and pay some bills, but uh, I, I think Canadians are uh, are really, uh, it's resonating, this message and my style. I want to have a conversation about policy ideas that help Canadians, so check us out. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, those two policies have, uh, our, our consumer uh, advocates very excited, and I look forward to seeing how this develops. Thanks very much. All right, it is, it is a great pleasure to introduce our next guest for Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Bjorn Lomberg is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, the author of the best-selling The Skeptical Environmentalist, and most recently, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Australians, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn, thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Hey, Dave, it's great to be here. Great, great. So you've written this new book, False Alarm. Uh, it's a very splashy headline. Uh, I'm sure that you've gotten a lot of um, intrigue based on that. But before we go into the specifics of climate policies, I want to ask the, 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 the first question is, when it comes to climate change, climate change is real, and it's something that we have to consider or be concerned about, or is it something that's not real? And it's, and, and it's something that we can completely disregard. So David, it's very clearly a real problem. It's human made and it is something that we should fix. But, and that's the main point here, we should not be so alarmed about it as we are. Uh, you know, if, if you mm-hmm. look at, uh, if we remember back before Corona, uh, you know, kids across the world were terrified about this. Uh, Washington Post survey shows that 57% of all kids are alarmed about climate change. And if you ask people around the world, so a survey of, from YouGov of uh, 28 nations showed that on average, almost half the world's population now believes that global warming will likely lead to the extinction of the human race. Look, that's just way beyond 
being reasonably concerned about a problem. That is being falsely alarmed. So we honestly believe that the world is going to end, whereas what the UN Climate Panel actually tells us, so the guys who write the gold standard report for the UN for everyone on what's climate about, they tell us that by about 50 years from now, in the 2070s, the average impact of climate change will be negative, and it will be equivalent to each one of us losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Remember, by the 2070s, each person is estimated to be about 2.63 times as rich as we are today. So almost three times richer. And because of global warming, instead of being 2.63 times richer, we'll only be 2.56 times richer. Now, that is a problem. It is just not the end of the world, and it's certainly not justified to believe we're all going to die. And Bjorn, one thing that uh, I noticed in your book is you use a lot of models and cost-benefit analysis, which is something very normal for every large problem that we're trying to solve collectively. But it seems in the climate debate on the climate crisis, as, as, as it is called, it's never really taken into consideration. And even you're sometimes attacked for using that kind of model. Why do you think that is? Well, yeah, if, I mean, first of all, it's because it gives the wrong answer, right? If, uh, if these global economic models showed us we should put everything and the kitchen sink into this in order to solve it because it would actually be a good deal, everyone would be quoting them. But the point is the cost-benefit analysis have been made, and they've mostly been uh, led by a guy called uh, William Nordhaus from Yale University, who actually got the Nobel Prize two years ago. He's the first climate economist to get the Nobel Prize. What he spent his career on doing and helped a lot of other people do is basically say, look, how much is it going to cost us to do climate policies, smart climate policies, and how much is it going to help us? And not surprisingly, what he finds is we should do some, but not everything. Uh, if you do a little bit, it's fairly cheap and it'll help a lot. If you do everything, it's going to be very expensive and it'll actually not help all that much more. That's why he finds there's an equilibrium, which most economists come out with. But he gets viciously attacked, and my book is to a large extent based on his findings, because it doesn't give the right answer. But of course, not liking the answer is not the same thing as not actually listening to it. It's the exact same thing that most climate alarmists tell us. You can't just ignore the climate science. No, absolutely we can't. The climate science tells us there's a real problem with global warming, but the climate economics also tells us very clearly while there's a big problem with climate, uh, there's also a big cost to trying to tackle it. We need to balance those two. That's unpopular, but it's necessary if we're actually gonna manage this. And, and can you maybe help walk our listeners through the magnitude of some of these costs in terms of the various climate policies? I mean, the, the Paris Accord comes to mind or any, any policies that are taken and what their impact is going to be and what the cost is going to be. Because when I read your work, I read through this and it's, I mean, for me, it's like, okay, well, the, the, the pros do not outweigh the cons and there are better pros that we can go after in terms of policies. But for most people, when we talk about climate change, they just think, well, we need to do every policy suggestion under the rainbow, because if we don't, we have 13 years uh, or, or whatever kind of big figure is thrown out there. But can you just walk us through what works, uh, what doesn't, what the costs are? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question because as, as you rightly point out, David, we are constantly being told this is the end of the world. And then obviously you're just gonna throw everything at it. I mean, if this was a meteor hurtling towards earth, we should just you know send Bruce Willis up there and deal with it and give him all the money he could possibly use, right? But the reality is this is a problem. This is like diabetes, something we need to fix and maintain and make smart choices on. But we also have to fix everything else, like the roads and the healthcare system with Corona and, you know, the education system, all these other things. So to give you a, a brief answer, it is astounding if you think back in 2015, the world agreed to the Paris Accord, which was essentially assuming to fix climate change. It's, a, it's the biggest treaty we've ever done. It's also the costliest treaty we've ever done. You would imagine somebody to actually analyze, so how much is this going to cost and how much is this going to do? The answer is no, they haven't. And for very obvious reasons, because it doesn't do very much and it costs a lot. So briefly, the impact, if you actually, if every nation actually does what they promised in the climate, uh, uh, the Paris Accord, uh, we don't, and we're nowhere near on track to that. And obviously Trump has you know, tried to pull the US out. But if you assume everyone tries to do this, the UN, uh, the guys who actually organized the meeting, so the UNFCCC, they actually once did this calculation. It came out with the uh, politically incorrect answer. That's why they've never done it again. But they found out how much will we actually reduce our emissions? It turns out that it's about 63 billion tons of CO2. Now, to most people, that doesn't mean anything. But just to give you a sense of proportion, if we're going to make the 1.5 degree target, we have to cut about 6,000 gigatons or billion tons of CO2. So we're literally promising with the Paris Agreement to reach 1% of that goal. And of course, we're not on track to even do that. So the Paris Agreement is a tiny bit of the way towards fixing climate change. However, so if you, if you translate that into uh, uh, temperature, it means that the temperature by the end of the century will be reduced by about 0.05 degrees. So that's not very much. It's a tiny bit, but not very much. The cost to the Paris Agreement, again, there's no official estimates, but there's lots of academically very valid studies. The best come from uh, Stanford Energy Modeling Forum, which brings together a lot of the best period energy economic models. What they find across the US, Europe, China, and a few other nations, and then it's scaled up to the rest of the world, is that the cost will be somewhere between one to two trillion dollars a year. So one to two percent of global GDP. So we're basically talking about spending an enormous amount of money, not the end of the world money, but enormous amount of money to do something that by uh, in 80 years, we can't tell the difference. Not surprisingly, it turns out that's not a good idea. If you do the cost benefit, every dollar spent will avoid about 11 cents of climate damage. That's a bad deal. And that's you know the point that I try to make. This is not rocket science but it's just surprisingly how we don't want to hear this, uh, and, this message. And really quick on that note, just I've heard you talk about this, uh, the, where it's a dollar amount and then what the investment return is. Can you walk us through where, like something like investing in tuberculosis or what's the return on that? So for every dollar um, spent in the climate space with Paris, you said 11 cents is, is essentially the, the return or what we avoid. What are some other things that you've looked at in terms of social good where money can be spent, where that return is actually multiples higher? 
Yeah. So just to give a very brief sense, because to many people, this is an odd way to think about the world, uh, right? You, you think about it, we, you know, we buy something and then you get a chair or a house or some, a car. But obviously, if you're going to compare across a wide range of areas, we try to compare all the benefits that you get and add them up into a common denominator, which we usually use as money. So, you know, if you invest in Paris, uh, you're going to spend real money, you're going to spend dollars, but you're going to get benefits that means you'll lose less uh, uh, wetlands, you'll have slightly less strong hurricanes that'll have slightly less damage and so on. And if you try to add up all those benefits, that's how you get the 11 cents. Now, you can do that across a wide range of areas. That's actually what my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus does. We work with more than 300 of the world's top economists, seven Nobel laureates to try to look at where can you spend a dollar and do the most good. So obviously, I love your, your question. Basically, where could you otherwise spend it? Turns out you can spend it on a lot of other things. So on tuberculosis, for instance, uh, most people don't recognize that tuberculosis is the world's leading infectious disease killer. It's not HIV AIDS, certainly not corona yet but it is tuberculosis, this old, old disease. The reason why we don't hear about it is because we fixed it a hundred years ago in the rich world. Uh, you know, people used to die from consumption all the time, but now almost nobody dies in the rich world, but lots of people still do in the third world. And it's very cheap and easy to fix. We estimate that for every dollar you spent on smart tuberculosis policies, you could do about $43 of social good. That's a fantastic investment. We actually also find if you invest in, uh, 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 um, sorry, um, oh, family planning, uh, then, uh, you know, then you could, because what, what that does, it does not only means that kids die less and they lose their moms less, but it also means you get slightly higher economic growth every dollar spent will produce $120 worth of social good. If you invest it in free trade, which is basically paying off rich Western farmers, which are the main ones uh, holding back free trade to get more free trade for the world, you could actually end up with $1 spent and delivering almost $2,000 of social good. Again, the point here is not to say that even if you can spend a dollar and do $3 worth of good, you should probably also do that. But you should certainly do the $43 before you do the $3. And you should certainly do it before you do the 11 cents. Uh, and honestly, you shouldn't do the 11 cents because you should just hand out the money instead and make people 10 times as happy. One thing that you mentioned in your book, Bjorn, is about you know how economics is very central to this, and it's very important for thinking about solutions and how we price them out. And uh, in the Stiglitz review, which we can get into later, um, he does mention the fact that you know there's there's a view of climate scientists. And that's something that I think a lot of us are, are kind of confused by. You know, what do the quote scientists say? Because it seems as if there's a lot of people who speak for them, but we don't necessarily hear, are they coming out with these solutions or is it more political? Well, I think the, the, the main reason why we have this confusion is because a lot of the stories that you hear about climate change are this relentless alarmist story. The end of the world is nigh. I give a lot of examples, but let me just take this one uh, uh Last year, uh, Washington Post and lots of papers across the nation and across the world led with this story. Because of global warming, 187 million people are going to have to relocate by the end of the century. And of course, not surprisingly, that very quickly became to 187 million people are going to die. They're going to drown. Right? And the idea is, very correctly, global warming leads to higher sea levels. Higher sea levels will inevitably mean that more people will be underwater and hence they'll have to move or they will drown. 
Now that seems really obvious unless you start, until you start realizing what this assumes is that over the next 80 years, nobody will do anything. So basically we'll just sit around, uh, watch the waves lap up over our knees and eventually our hips, and eventually we'll either drown or have to move. But of course, in reality, we adapt. We put up dikes, for instance, you know, Holland has shown the way in that, and we know how to do that. So that very same study that showed 187 million people are gonna die, or sorry, are gonna have to move on if, if we do nothing, also said, if we do something, that is, if we do what they assume will be the smart thing and it'll be very, very cheap, we will not see 187 million people having to move, but we'll see about 300,000 people having to move. So one six hundredth of the number was the actual number. Great insights, as always, from Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, that's uh, actually from an episode we did uh, in our first year, and uh, we were able to you know, get... Beyond Lombard on, talk about the environmental issues of the day, still very pertinent. Uh, we're hoping to have him on for the next Consumer Choice Radio. But in the meantime, thank you guys for listening. Next week, we will have Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine. He's got a great new book, The New Puritans. We'll be on to discuss that. You guys stay tuned. Consumer Choice Radio.